The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a pop-up. First base side foul ground playable. Santana makes the catch. The Indians have won the American League pennant. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the seventh consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress throughout the 2017 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com as we continue our trek along the 2017 Major League Baseball season talking about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. We're going to go on the road next week and bring you the show from the Montgomery Inn at 925 Riverside Drive down in Cincinnati. That'll be the night that the Reds and the Indians will be playing each other at Great American Ballpark, the first of four games. They'll play the first two in Cincinnati, and then the second two on Wednesday and Thursday will be played up in Cleveland at Progressive Field. But that's what's happening next week. We've got to talk about what happened this weekend. In order to do that, let's move along now to our resident Reds expert down south, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you tonight? Hi, Dave. Uh, Welcome to a team... That is growing. I'm talking about the Cincinnati Reds and the, I guess, the inconsistency we can expect over the next maybe year, maybe two years, as this team gets back on its feet organizationally and, and starts, uh, you know, winning more games. The uh, Reds just dropped three in a row to the San Francisco Giants in San Francisco after clobbering the Giants last week in Cincinnati. Uh, they still won the season series four to three, but the Reds clearly and easily could have won two more of those games over the weekend. But uh, inconsistency offensively, uh, you're going to see inconsistency in pitching, and that's that's what happens when a team begins to develop and grow. Are the Reds better than they were last year? Absolutely. Are they going to be better still next year? Yes. But you're going to have these these. I guess hills and, and dales, as it were, <clears throat> of a team that will play well for a week and then play very poorly for a week, uh, unlike true contending teams that, that have a lot more consistency. But again, that's, that's part of the process. And if I, uh, if speaking for other Reds fans, uh, I'm encouraged by what's happened so far. If you'd have told me that after this many games into the season here in mid-May, that the Reds would be in the hunt, only two and a half games out of first place, and playing over 500, I sure would have taken it back in January. Well, you know, I, I talk a lot about the <clears throat> announcers that are up in Cleveland on the radio and how much I disdain what it is that they do. But one word that they absolutely hate, but it's it's attributable right now to the Cincinnati Reds, is the word process. It is a process to not only build a team, but then to coddle it along, as you would say, and for this team to learn how to win, and that's what the Reds are doing right now. Yeah, I think the difference that you see in mid-market teams, and, and I'm going to uh, say the St. Louis Cardinals may be an exception to this, but a lot of teams go on this roller coaster ride. 
where you know the Reds won their they got in the playoffs in 2010, 2012, 2013, and then they went into a tailspin, and now they're coming out of it. So maybe in two years they'll be in the playoffs again. I mean, I, I would say in 2018 they have a pretty good chance of making the playoffs. In 2019, I would say the Reds will be in the playoffs. But how long can they sustain that? Is another two or three years of, of getting near the playoffs or in the playoffs? And then they have to crater again because they can't afford to keep their players. That is the, the lot in life of mid-market teams right now. And when you, when you have teams like the Cardinals, uh, other, other teams, Chicago now I think has reached the point where you're going to see Chicago in the playoffs for the next decade. They've got so much money that uh, they've got so much youth in their in their farm system. They're going to be able to sustain a, a level of play out of Chicago that smaller market teams can't. It'll be very interesting with getting your comments on, on the Indians. Uh, in the next two or three years, you're going to have a lot of contracts coming up. And does that then indicate that the Indians will start sliding back again? because of their inability to match a payroll of Chicago or New York or, or Los Angeles. So that's that's the way it is in baseball until there is a, a different financial setup. But right now, I think the Reds are on the uptick. Well, you know, you talk about the Indians and what they have done as far as trying to stay away from having that downtick, as you call it. They've pretty much got everybody signed up for the next four or five years. It's not two or three years. They've got people that are signed up through the 2022-2023 season, especially Corey Kluber, Carlos, uh, I should say Carlos Carrasco, uh, Danny Salazar. Trevor Bauer is the only guy out of the starting rotation that they don't have signed to a long period term. Uh, but then they've got Ryan Merritt and Mike Clevenger. And Mike Clevenger has come up and done an outstanding job for this team in the absence of Corey Kluber which I saw an article today, Mark, which I thought was very interesting from CBS Sports. And they talked about four pitchers in particular, Jake Arrieta and Corey Kluber, who are struggling this year, and should their teams be worried about it? Well, the fact of the matter is, I don't know where in the world Mike Isley, who is the gentleman that wrote this article for CBS Sports, it's almost like he wanted to throw some crap against the Walmart that had to do with Cleveland, and hopefully it would stick, and he decided that Corey Kluber was the guy since Kluber has been on the DL. Now, Klubes is going to start throwing off the mound this weekend, and the Indians have said that it's just a lower back strain, that it is nothing to be concerned about. I <clears throat> agree with the Indians. Normally, the Indians are pretty truthful about when a player is hurt, and what the situation is for them. Kluber had to leave a start a couple of weeks ago. They put him on the 10-day DL. He's going to start throwing off the mound this weekend. They hope to have him back by the end of the month, at least by Memorial Day, which is two weeks from today. And if they get him back the way Mike Clevenger has pitched for this team, Mark, and the way Trevor Bauer has stepped up, even though you would hear a lot of people say that Trevor Bauer was really a mess in a game last week, but then he came back and pitched against Minnesota and pitched very well. Well, the fact of the matter is is that in a game against Detroit a week ago, Mark, where a lot of Indians fans and the Indians media said that Trevor Bauer was just a mess, 
he gave up five hits, two home runs, and a bloop single that scored two runs, went seven innings in the ball game, and threw 128 pitches. Now, I'm certain that Brian Price in the Cincinnati Reds would love to have a starting pitcher whose worst outing of the year was to give up two home runs, a bloop single that scored two runs, four runs total, earned runs, 128 pitches, seven innings, and he walked away with a 4-3 to three loss. I'm sure the Reds would love to have a starter that would do that consistently. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, comparing Kluber to um, Arietta, uh, I have only seen Kluber pitch once this year, and he looked dominating the game I saw him play. I forget who they were pitching against. I've seen uh, Arietta pitch three times, and he did not look like the same pitcher to me that he did last year. Now, it could just be he's experiencing some arm fatigue out of spring training, <clears throat> but he got lit up by, by the Reds. Not lit up, but he got hit hard by the Reds. And his last outing, he, he got hit pretty hard. I'm sure the Reds will face him this week in Chicago. Uh, but uh, he did not look like the same guy. And the only thing that, that can, can bring down a team like the, the Chicago Cubs is their pitching. And I don't think that pitching is that strong. They are, they are. Yeah, I agree. They're really deep offensively. And I think it's very interesting the strategy that, that Chicago went after. And it's really one that I, I believe in. They went to go out and get an offensive juggernaut, uh, in place on their 40 man roster that would just score more runs than anybody else. So they could afford to have a pitcher who gave up, you know, four or five runs a game and still win the game. And their their belief is let's get the best eight players on the field offensively and hit four more or five more on the bench that, that could start for most of other teams offensively, and we'll take our chances. If we need a pitcher like Johnny Cueto, we'll go buy him. You know, we'll look at the all-star break. We'll go get a Johnny Cueto. We'll get whomever else we need to, to fortify that starting rotation and go win another World Series. So I think the Indians – mainly because of their economic restrictions, uh, may not have the ability to uh, to do do it the way the Cubs do, and they're going to have to rely on pitching. But, you know, w- when you have a, a team that's built on pitching, it, it takes only a couple injuries to have that team go in the dumper. And last year, the Reds lost all five of their starting pitchers when the season started, every one of them was on the DL. This year, they have three starting pitchers on the DL. You, you cannot be a, a front runner in a division and lose three starting pitchers. I don't care who you are. You, no team can survive that. So I, I wonder what the, the organization thinks about whatever off-season training program they have for their pitchers to lose Eight of your ten starters over two years, to me, it sounds like there's something amiss in the way they're approaching their offseason. That's almost impossible to do. Well, it could be. I want to go back to Jake Arrieta for a second because I've never been one that bought into the ESPN fallacy that Jake Arrieta was a constant all-star pitcher throughout his career. Mark, he came up in 2010 with Baltimore at the age of 24. He pitched three, four years for Baltimore, 
actually three and a half years for Baltimore, and then it was traded to Chicago at the trade deadline. But here's his records from 2010 up to 2013. Six and six, ten and eight, three and nine. That was all with Baltimore. Five and four, four and two, ten and five. Then he went 22 and six in that magical year that he had with the Cubs in 2015. And then last year, he was 18 and eight. But, his ERA jumped a point and a half. It went from 1.77 in 2015 to 3.10 in 2016. Almost a point and a half, Mark, his ERA <coughs> jumped. That is a lot for a pitcher and his ERA to jump in one year. So until that 2015 season, Jake Arietta was a, you could call him a journeyman. You could call him an also-ran pitcher. Throughout his years, he had one good season. Then he went back to where his ERA was at over three, and it, but he did win ten games over five hundred. Now he's back to pitching the way he was in Baltimore. I was never a Jake Arrieta fan, never believed in him. But you get a lot of these media personnel, and I'm going to coin a term. They start using alternative facts, and with Jake Arrieta, I think a lot of it was alternative because they were talking about him being a Hall of Famer after that 22-6 and six year. And basically all that happened, Mark, was he found a slider that was falling off the end of the table. You know, the biggest difference I noticed in Arietta when he came up, I, I, I remember him pitching in Baltimore. I don't know why. Maybe his name got me or whatever. But when he came in, into 2014, it started in 2014, he, his body changed. He, 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 he muscled up. He, he went to the weight room a lot, apparently. And he came out in 2015, and he was a stud. I mean, he looked like it, like an outside linebacker. He's he's a great athlete, and he really hit the weight room. And I, you know, I I know I'm, I'm not at all suggesting he uses steroids. I'm not at all. I think he was a very diligent uh, visitor to his his local weight room, though, and it really helped him. Uh, when I saw him pitch this year. He he looked almost too muscular, and I don't know if that had an impact on his his delivery or not. But you can overdo the weights, and what I, the big thing I noticed was the slider that you talked about in 2014 2015. That slider was unhittable. I mean, if he threw it for a strike, you couldn't hit it. He could tell you it was coming, and you couldn't hit it. And this year, that slider has been up, and his velocity has been down. Uh, and it's only a mile and a half, two miles an hour down from what I saw, but it, it's it's a it's a lot at the big league level because it, it, everything comes off your fastball, and if you don't have your fastball in the mid 90s where he was, it does impact your slider. Uh, it, guys can, can can adjust to it, so uh, it could be physical with him. Uh, I don't know, but you know he's what 32 years old. He's, 30, he's 31 right now. 31, okay. Well, <clears throat> not that he's on the downside of his career. I'm not saying that. He can have a lot of good years ahead. But, you know, a, a starting pitcher, especially a guy who throws as hard as he does, they don't have a long shelf life. And that's where we get back to the conversation of last week of guys learning to pitch. And I'm sure he's smart enough to work on secondary pitches, so... When he gets to be 34, 35, 36, he loses that fastball. 
that he can stay in the game by just being a better pitcher. By the way, the Reds are off tonight, and they're going to open up a three-game set in Chicago against the Cubs, and the Reds are going to get to see Jake Arrieta pitch during his three-game set. The Indians, they're playing tonight against Tampa Bay, and Tampa Bay has got one of the best starting staffs in baseball. They have really come off and started pitching well at the beginning of this Major League Baseball season. So the Indians are at home for Tampa Bay over the next three nights, and then they'll play a Wednesday afternoon businessman special. The Indians are 19-17 and heading into tonight's action. They're in second place. They lost two out of three to Minnesota at home against the Twins. And because of that, the Twins are now in first place in the American League Central, a game ahead of the Indians and two games ahead of the Detroit Tigers. But, Mark, when do the Indian fans and the Indians themselves, quite frankly, I'm not going to panic about it right now, but when do you start a panic situation if you're the Indians with the lack of offensive flack that they have shown throughout the first 38 games of the year. You know, a lot of people will tell you that they they split the season up in 40-game increments. Well, you're almost to the end of that first furlong of 40 games for the Indians. 38 for the Indians, and for the Reds, you've got 37. But when you look at this mark and you, you see where the Indians are at, in nine of their last 12 ball games, they've scored three runs or less. And in five of those games, they scored one or none runs in those ball games. When, as an Indians fan or as an Indians player, do you start getting concerned about the offense that the Indians are not showing? I think it's it's predicated mainly on the division you're in, uh, the teams around you. When you start falling five, six, seven games back, uh, in the division, which the Indians clearly are not close to being, uh, I think that's when panic could set in. Uh, it certainly gets your attention when you start falling three, four games behind, but it depends on who's in your division. That central division of the American League, I mean, nothing personal, Dave. I, I think it's one of the weakest divisions in baseball. So I think the Indians, even having a down offensive season a year, uh, they can compete in that certainly until the all-star break. I mean, they're, they're going to be in the hunt uh, most of the, most of the time. Now the question becomes then if your offense is lagging the first half of the year, even though you're still in the hunt, you're still two or three games out of first place or, or two or three games ahead. Uh, th- then what do you do? Do you say, look, okay, we've given it a half a year. This offense is not cooking, but let me ask you a question about your offense. Who would you sit down? Who, if, if, if you went out and got somebody, uh, you got you got a bat. Where would you put them? Center or right? That'd be where they'd have to put somebody. Uh, they can't put them at first base. Second base is taken by Kipnis, and Kipnis started hitting over the weekend. Uh, you're not going to replace Francisco Lindor. You've got two catchers that mark the, the catching position for the Indians is a position that gets absolutely. No respect whatsoever. You've got Perez and you've got Jan Gomes at the catching position. And, Mark, they're throwing out almost 50% of the base runners that are attempting steals against them. That's why this upcoming series against the Reds, I am so excited to see what happens between Billy Hamilton 
and the Reds and the Indians catchers. That's what I want to see. That's the matchup I want. I want Billy Hamilton at first base against the Indians catchers and just see what happens. Because the Indians right now, as much as you don't hear about it, they're the toughest team in baseball to steal a base against. And that's because both their catchers, Perez and Gomes, can throw guys out. Well, it's also because, you know, I understand your catching is very good this year. But a lot of that is the pitchers, too. They have to be cognizant of that. Uh, they have to change their <clears throat> delivery to when, a, when a guy who can steal is on first base. And so that's it's a team effort. I don't care how good your catcher is. If your pitchers are not holding that guy on or they're not taking using a slide step or quickening their delivery to the plate, I don't care who's behind the plate, you're not going to throw out a Billy Hamilton. Uh, Billy Hamilton has stolen 19 out of 21 bases this year. The two times he was called out, he actually overslid the base and was called out because he, he you know, was going too fast into the base and, and went over it. So uh, if your pitchers are doing a good job of, of holding him on, yeah, the catchers can, can cut him down. But uh, if, if they don't, I don't care who's behind the plate. Mark, another thing is, is that the Reds, 19 and 18 so far on the season. They're in third place. Last week they were in first. We told you to take a snapshot of it. And That's right. I hope you did because now the Reds have dropped into third place, but not they're not in too bad a situation still, Mark. They're they're two and a half games out in the division behind St. Louis, and they're one and a half games behind Milwaukee, who's in second spot. Now, the start that they got on Saturday <clears throat> From Lisaverta Bonilla, and try saying that name fast three times. He's a gentleman that they picked up from the Rangers about a year ago, 26-year-old right-hander. After that 17-inning game in which Brian Price on Friday night used eight of the ten relievers that he had in his bullpen, they needed a strong start out of Bonilla, and boy, did they get it on Saturday in San Francisco. He came in and did uh, he rested the bullpen. I'm not convinced that Bonilla is the answer uh, the rest of this season. Again, the Giants are one of the worst offensive teams in baseball this year. So, yeah, I, I, he went eight innings, a complete game loss, which is rare these days. But uh, we'll see what happens his next start, because I think it's against the Cubs. Uh, and that will be more of a litmus test. But uh, these are the kinds of ins and outs that you're going to have uh, with this team that um, a guy will come up, he'll pitch well one game, you say, wow, he, he's our savior. And uh, they find out that he's not the savior after a second or third start. So we'll see what happens. But I noticed that Amir Garrett went down to AAA this week. Uh, he'll be called up, I think, this coming weekend. Uh, he was out 10 days. He pitched six, he pitched, uh, to six batters in a triple A game. I think it was, uh, Saturday or Sunday. And he struck out all six, <clears throat> all six hitters. Uh, he's faced nine hitters in two locations, in two outings. He struck out eight. So I think we can say that he's healthy. And you know, th this idea of giving a starting pitcher during the season two starts off. During the year, I think it's a great idea because I don't care how you how you look at these pitchers. They do get tired. It puts stress on their arm. And the worst thing to do 
is to be fatigued and go out there and try and throw hard. That's when you get hurt. So the idea of, a, of an Amir Garrett taking 10 days off, I, I think a lot of teams ought to consider giving pitchers, let them, let them skip two starts uh, during the year, maybe, maybe more than once, and Mark, keep them Mark, strong. I'm surprised. I'm surprised at what you're saying here. I, I seriously am. Because I thought that this start by Bonilla, you're kind of poo-pooing this start. I thought it was the most, imp- I thought it was the most impressive starting pitching performance the Reds have had all season long at a time where they needed it. Yeah, Dave, they, they've had three shutouts this year. They lead the league in shutouts. So they've had better. Uh, did you see the game, by the way? Yeah, I did. I watched yeah. the entire thing, and I thought he was he was on top of his pitches. Yeah, he made some mistakes, yeah. but he had three pitches that were working extremely well for him. Well, that, that, that was far from the best start of, of a Reds pitcher this year. But uh, I, I agree he pitched well. I'm not saying he didn't pitch well. I'm saying he pitched well against a team that doesn't hit very well. So the jury is still out as far as I'm concerned. Let's see what happens after his second or third start. Uh, his stuff, to me, wasn't overpowering. He wasn't throwing 100 miles an hour. He had a great, he had good location. He had good control. All those things I liked a lot. But I'm not going to let one start from a guy who earlier this year was on a AAA roster for a reason, uh, comes up and pitches a good game in a pitcher's ballpark against a weak hitting team. That ballpark, if the Reds pitchers pitch in that ballpark all the time, uh, they'd, they'd be a, a lot better pitching staff, although their offense would be a lot worse. That, that's, that's like hitting in the Grand Canyon, that place. So let's see what happens with Bonilla, but I, I'm not yet on the Bonilla bandwagon. Well, I'm not asking you to be on the Bonilla bandwagon. All I'm saying is, is that he pitched a very good ball game at a time that the Reds needed a well-pitched game out of a starting pitcher, and he gave them exactly what it was that they needed. Because, Mark, you mentioned that he went the complete game route in the loss, and that's only the sixth time that a Reds pitcher has done that all time, has has pitched a complete game loss all time in their history. I found that stat to be rather amusing, rather odd, considering that the Reds are the oldest franchise in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not... I'm not arguing with the result of his effort and, and that it was timely and really saved the bullpen. All those things I agree with. I, I'm just not saying that what I saw on the mound to me did not look like overpowering stuff that I'm going to get all lathered up about until I see him do it again against a much better hitting ball club. Well, like you said, you'll get a chance to see it this week against the Cubs. I believe he's pitching on Thursday afternoon. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. Yeah. Now, this next stat that I want to bring up about the Reds, I'm going to give all the credit in the world to whomever gave it to Lance McAllister at 1530 Radio down in Cincinnati. But he brought up an interesting stat mark on Billy Hamilton and just how important he is to this ball club. Right now, Hamilton's got a 253 batting average. He's got an open. OPS on base percentage of over 300, which is right about where the Reds would like him to be. Probably a little bit better, but they'd like him to stay there. You know, Billy Hamilton is hitting 333 in Reds wins over the last four years, but 167 in Reds losses. And of course, that means that the numbers for Joey Votto and Zach Cozart 
are even better, Mark, because what they have is they've got increased batting stats, but that's because Hamilton is on first base taking away the pitcher's concentration from the batter at the time. Yeah, I mean, Billy, he's a, he's a conundrum because those numbers by Lance are, are very accurate as, as I view his performance this year and really over the last three or four years. The problem is always one of consistency. When he gets on base, he can be a disruptor. He can be a game changer. His defense is terrific. His outfield play all around, even with his arm, he's got an outstanding arm. It's just can you afford to have a guy inconsistent and have such a huge impact on the game? Uh, Billy Hamilton is getting better, but frankly, I, I'm less concerned about Billy Hamilton's offensive prowess this year uh, than I am about uh, Peraza's performance. I don't know if you've been paying attention to Peraza. He's hitting uh, 230, 25-230, but I'm telling you, it's a soft 225-230. Uh, this guy makes the weakest contact that I, I've ever seen at a major league level. He every every base that he gets is typically a flare field. That's his his location. He had, he did have a triple in the in the right field corner or right center field slot yesterday, but that's that's very much a rarity. I don't think he has a home run this year, and I just don't know how long the Reds can afford to have a Peraza and a Billy Hamilton in that lineup. It just it, it's so many outs that you're you're getting, and it, it really negatively impacts the Reds' offense. Well, and when you look at Peraza, he's the guy that they really want something to happen with because that would allow them the opportunity to trade Zach Cozart if possible. Yeah, that's a really good point, and I, I think his lack of performance this year uh, would really impact. I mean, the Reds are going to have a big decision to make at the All-Star break. With this division, everybody beating up everybody else, you know, if you're three or four games over 500 at the All-Star break, you're you're in this thing. You have a chance to win it. So if you're the Reds and you're say you're two or three games out, uh, and and Cozart's still hitting 310, 320, he's up to 334 right now, 335. Uh, do you trade him? Would, would you trade uh, Zach Cozart if the Reds are still in the hunt and basically continue the re, you know the regrowth of the organization, or do you keep him? And go for it. It depends on what I'm offered. I would definitely listen. But it depends upon what it is. See, that's where, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the Reds are skating a fine line if they are in contention for even the wild card spot at the, All at the All-Star break. Because then you've got two to three weeks of conversation about what do the Reds do? Do they go ahead and do they make trades as if they can make the playoffs, or do they continue to build this team for the future? And you're skating that fine line because these players that are on that team, that 25-man roster, they're not looking to the future. They're looking to make the playoffs now. They're looking at that bonus money in the playoffs, and they, that's what they want. And if the front office doesn't show enough confidence in them to make the playoffs, then that could really affect the psyche of a team as it did the Indians a couple of years ago, if you recall. Sure. Uh, it's going to be interesting because I'm disappointed in Peraza's play all around. He's he's adequate at second base. 
Uh, he's not spectacular means. He's got decent speed, you know, better than average speed, but he doesn't have Billy Hamill's speed. And is, is, is really, is remarkably weak. And he, he has a style where he just lays the bat on the ball. He doesn't strike out very much. That's good. But pitchers right now are overpowering him. They, they just come with a fastball and he can't pull the trigger on it. Everything is to right center field. It's very rare that he pulls the ball. So uh, the, the Reds, I, I don't think they're ready to go out on a limb with this guy yet and say he's our shortstop, especially when you have Peraza hitting 335 uh, and some shortstop as well. How about the situation with Scooter Jeanette? Scooter Jeanette has played outstanding ball, but he's really playing part-time second base for the Reds. Is it about time that you stick him in at second base and just let him play? That's a very good point. I thought over the weekend as well when I saw Peraza play. I mean, he's really helpless at the plate right now, and Scooter Jeanette is a ball player. I like him. He's not a great second baseman. He dropped a fly ball the other night on Friday night's game, almost cost him the game, and he doesn't turn the double play very well. But he's he always makes contact he, and he can he, he's driving in runs I think he's got 14 15 RBIs uh, he's got a few home runs so in answer to your question yes I would put Jeanette at second base along with Cozart and le- let him play there bring in Peraza uh, to pinch run uh, sp- spot starts you know at short and second which he can do and let him earn his way back into that lineup because when Scooter Jeanette is in that lineup. That that is a good lineup. There's and, and the other guy that's coming around slowly but surely is Devin Mazzarocco. He's sitting 275 now, and he's got a home run. And he and he's I can see him. He's starting to really load up on his swing. He was trying to make contact early in the year, and now he's hitting the ball hard. And hopefully, the second half of the year, you're going to have a a legitimate number five, six hitter there in your lineup that's hitting number eight now, and you team him up with Scooter Jeanette, and you've got you've got a scary lineup. Mark, what bothers me about Ben Zarocco is no longer the catching, but I watched him leg out a double on Saturday against the Giants, and Mark, he he just is having trouble running. That hip is still giving him trouble. Yeah, I, I agree with that, but. As long as it's not bothering him catching, and I don't know how it couldn't be, but he, you know, he seems to be agile behind the plate. He's throwing very well. Uh, I don't see any outward signs of a of an injury or a lingering injury from his from a hip. And he's going to get better. He's going to get stronger, you know, throughout the season. So hopefully he'll, um, you know, he'll come around. And you've got Tucker Barnhart who's having another very, very good year offensively and defensively. And, and that's that's a very good number one, number two catcher combination. So I'm not worried about the catching right now. I think it's only going to get better. But I am worried about Peraza and what he's what he's not bringing to this lineup. And I, I, I just do not see him as the shortstop of the future of this team right now. He's just he, he seems almost frail out there. Uh, and, and he just slaps at the ball, which I don't want. Mark, the Indians made a lineup change yesterday that I thought was fairly interesting. Jason Kipnis, since coming back at the end of April, 
from the shoulder situation that he had during spring training, was moved into the leadoff spot. Now, he's been batting in the sixth position ever since he returned because Michael Brantley and Francisco Lindor have been hitting second and third throughout the year, and they've been doing a pretty good job. And Francona likes Carlos Santana in the leadoff spot. But yesterday, he moved Santana to the number five spot in the batting order and put Jason Kipnis, who is really struggling, at the leadoff position. Now, to the naked eye, a lot of people questioned that move before the ball game. But then what happened? Jason Kipnis went out and hit two home runs in the ball game in his first two at bats, drove in five runs in the Indians' win yesterday. It was eight to three over Minnesota. So Jason Kipnis now over the last three years has batted in the first spot, the second spot, and the third spot in the batting order. They can't seem to find a spot in the lineup for him, but as long as he continues to hit no matter where they put him, Mark, I don't care. Bat him wherever. And that's that's the advantage you guys have in your lineup. You you've got interchangeable parts there. And that that is still a strong lineup. I know they're going through a a dearth right now, but, uh, you know, I think overall, uh, the Indians are going to hit, and, but that pitching did, frankly, a lot. But I, Mr. General Manager, uh, if, if you were given the ability to magically do so, who would you rather have in your lineup right today? Encarnacion or Mike Napoli? Encarnacion. Okay. I the saw Napoli. Question I've got a, the only question I've got about Encarnacion, and it's one that I've brought up before, is his locker room presence. I knew Napoli had a great locker room presence, but I'm not sure what it is with Encarnacion. But still in all, based upon what Double E has done over the past few years, I'd rather have him. Well, certainly because of age, if nothing else. But in, in terms of performance this year, are you happy with what you are seeing out of uh, EE this year? No. No. But... He's starting to come around. He hit a home run. He He's hit a couple of home runs this week. He, he's starting to come around at the plate. And, Mark, I know this sounds like a little thing, but in this age of baseball where little things seem to amount to big things, I'm not sure Edward Encarnacion ever really had to play in April in a lot of cold weather because Toronto's got the dome. They keep it at 72 degrees all the time. And Toronto, you know, they'd always send them to the warm places like they try to do with the Eastern Division, send them to warm places in the month of April, and then the warm places come to their spots during the summer where it gets warmer. I'm not sure Encarnacion has ever really had to play in cold weather in the month of April and early May, and this may have been a shock to his system. And now... Whether or not that's the case, I don't know. But he is starting to warm up with the weather. Well, I'm just wondering, too, if he's being impacted by the lineup that he left in Toronto. Batista was around him. Wasn't Saunders over there at one time, too? Uh, They had a lot of depth in that lineup that protected EE. And either people had to pitch to him or they had to pitch around him. And so it's... I don't think Cleveland has that kind of lineup that that EE. I mean, to me, at the beginning of the year, if I looked to I would say Encarnacion. 
uh, if I looked at Toronto last year, I wouldn't necessarily say Encarnacion. He's he would be one of the power sources for sure. But that Toronto lineup last year was devastating, and uh, you know the, Cleveland just doesn't have that this year. Mark, we would be remiss if we didn't say anything about uh, the passing of former Major League umpire Steve Palermo. He passed away yesterday. Uh, Major League Baseball came out today and confirmed that he did pass away. Mark, he was one of the better umpires in Major League Baseball, only spent five years in the minor leagues, came up, and he umpired in numerous All-Star games, World Series, playoffs, and then one night in Texas during a regular season game, the game was over, he went out to dinner and saw a, a robbery taking place, stepped in bet- into the robbery and tried to save the people, got shot himself and was paralyzed uh, in the lower half of his body. Now, he eventually worked through that paralysis and eventually ended up throwing out the first pitch in the 1991 World Series in game number one. But he died yesterday. They say he died of cancer. No official release has been made as to the cause of death. But he is a guy, Mark, that in in a day and age of when you and I would watch arguments with umpires, he not only commanded respect, but he was given respect on the field as an umpire by the players and managers. Yeah, I, I remember him. And it, it's sad that uh, when you told me that this morning when we talked, I had forgotten. I, mean, I, I remember Steve Palermo and him being an umpire. I had forgotten what had caused his paralysis. The guy was a hero. And forget what he did on the field, you know, what he did to step in and try and intervene in a situation like that uh, took some guts. And it's just tragedy. When tragedy strikes like that, uh, when a guy is doing the right thing, it, it's particularly sad. And uh, it's unfortunate that that happened to him. That You know, it's funny, as you get older, I had forgotten completely how long ago that was that that happened. And, uh, you know, in some cases a whole lifetime ago. But, uh, yeah, that that was sad news. Yeah, and, you know, so we want to send out best wishes to his family who was going through a very tough time. Mark, another thing that came up today that I, I know Major League Baseball is heading this way. The NBA announced that the Cleveland Cavaliers – are going to have a corporate sponsor on their uniform next season, and that is Goodyear. Now, obviously, Goodyear is out of Akron, so it makes perfect sense that Goodyear would sponsor the Cleveland Cavaliers. That part of it I'm not arguing about. But how far away are we, Mark, since the NBA is doing it, the NFL has talked about it, I think the NHL is probably a step or two away from having corporate sponsorship logos on their uniforms. Just how far away are we right now, Mark, from having corporate sponsorship logos on Major League Baseball uniforms? I think we're away from that in Major League Baseball. Give, give it a snail's pace, to say the least, on, on, on changes. And I think this one would be met with a lot of pushback from the owners and uh, and the fans, for that matter. Uh, and, you know, it seems kind of sanctimonious to say it, but there is 
something kind of sacred about the uniforms of Major League Baseball teams. And I, I, I don't think it's in the offing uh, in the near term. Down the road, who knows? Uh, but I, I think it's going to be a while before we see it in Major League Baseball. How, how far down the road? Five years, 10 years, 20 yeah, years? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'd say five to 10 years before that would occur. And, uh, again, I think there's going to be a lot of public pushback on it. I mean, my God, they're already making enough with, you know, $8 hot dogs. Uh, I, I don't understand why you'd have to butcher up. And, and then where does it stop? Uh, you know, with I saw the other day that they're able to put an ad on a wall without having the ad there. It's just seen on TV. Uh, they could they, <laughs> no, really, they could put they, it's like a yeah. like a green screen out there. It's like behind home plate. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's it's like a green screen when they're making a movie. So if if we go to the stadium, we see a, a black or, or a green board, but the TV fans see Coca Cola or they see Pepsi Cola or whatever they, they want that day. Uh, so they could do that with all. They could take down all the signs within the stadium if they wanted to. They don't have to, but they could have certain signs. They could have a different ad every five minutes because they they superimpose it on the screen, just like in, when you're making a movie. Uh, so there's no shortage of ad opportunities at a baseball game. So I hope Major League Baseball doesn't do that. I think that would be totally inappropriate for, for baseball. I, I agree with you. I don't like the idea that the NBA is doing it. You know, I wrote an article this morning that I've got a love-hate relationship with the NBA. I just don't like the product, but I love watching the Cavaliers because they're my team. But, Mark, I think it's the, the way of the times right now. I think the NFL is going to end up doing it. I think pretty soon you'll see the Seattle Seahawks with the Nike swoosh on their uniforms with the Cleveland Browns. You may see them with some sort of a progressive logo or uh, even, you know, could be Goodyear again. I mean, we could go through a lot of these things. The Detroit Lions could have the Ford Motor Company logo on them. And I think in Major League Baseball, I think it's just, I think it's quicker. I, I think it's going to be within five years that we're going to see a corporate logo on the uniforms of Major League Baseball players. I hope not. I hope okay. I'm wrong. All right, Dave. Well, let's, you know, put your money where your mouth I have $10 million that it's, it's more than five years. How much? $2 million. I'll, be, I'll bet you. <laughs> I want to see the proof of funds on the two million first. <laughs> boy, boy that, that that hurt, Dave. That hurt. Yeah, I, obviously. Speaking of two, boy, that was a great segue, Mark. Pete, and, and we don't even talk about this, but boy, you did, you did a great job of segueing into the number two. Derek Jeter had his number two retired last night at Yankee Stadium, and I heard an interesting question asked about this number retirement. When will we see another Yankee have his number retired? Will it be in our lifetime, you and I's lifetime, which could be 20 years, that we'll see a, another number of the New York Yankees retired? Well, that, that's a real good question. I, I don't see anybody on the roster today, but you never know. I mean, somebody could break out and become a superstar. Uh, but 
Who was number six? Number six. Was that Mantle? Number, no, Mantle was number seven, and Yogi Berra was number eight. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there had sure to be a number six. six. I, 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 uh, but came out of numbers <laughs> eventually. But when you've won 27 World Series, that's what happens. Uh, I can't think of anybody uh, that has recently come up to the Yankees would rise to that level. But, you know, i got to say that the young Steinbrenners, they have, boy, if a team has ever changed its mode of doing business, it's the Yankees. They have gone back to what made them great back in the 50s and 60s, and that is developing a tremendous farm system, taking their money, investing it in that farm system, making good trades, not signing free agents, and, and building from the ground up. And that was a very, very difficult thing to do in the city of New York, where they want instantaneous gratification. But that, that that team, the New York Yankees, I saw them play against the Reds. I only saw them two games, but, man, that, that's a good team. That's not just – that bullpen they have may be the best bullpen in baseball. And, you know, if, if you're trailing that team after the fifth inning, you can pretty much mail it in. And they're building up that uh, with, with Judge coming in. That guy's a monster. <laughs> that guy, it was six eight, two eighty, and yeah, you know, it just gigantic. And it, and he's a good hitter. He's not just a, a slugger. He's a good hitter. And, and they have a lot of young talent coming up through that organization. That team, if I'm the Cleveland Indians, that's where I'm looking. Uh, I don't think it's going to be uh, anybody else with the Yankees over the next decade. They they could win. They could win five or six and, and have, you know, maybe four or five World Series coming up in the next decade. Uh, and you know what? That, that would be fun. That would be fun, Mark, because it was in the 50s and the, you know, the, the late 40s and the 50s, all throughout the 50s, that it was the Indians and the Yankees always battling it out for the American League pennant. Uh, I don't remember that. I remember the Yankees battling the Yankees it out. Yankees always winning. But yeah. the Indians were right there in second place, right behind them. It's like kissing your sister. Uh, I remember Detroit and Boston had some pretty good teams back in there, too. I mean, I remember Boston being more of a competitor to the Yankees than, than Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland won it, uh, you know, they, they won in 54, won the pennant in 54. Uh, but, you know, I don't remember them doing much to challenge the Yankees other than that. But Boston did. Uh, Detroit had some good years. Uh, you know, Cleveland, I think, was a probably an over 500 team back then, but I don't, I don't oh, recall that. Mark, Mark, you got to go back and look up your stats. Boston stunk in the 50s. Boston stunk in the 50s. It was the Indians that was battling it out with the Yankees every year oh. for first place. Uh, they never won the pennant. You can battle them all they want. They never won the pennant. Yeah, the Yankees Ever. won it every year. Yeah, that's my point. And they won it yeah. every year in the 60s. And so, you know, it was an okay team, but I don't think they stood out any more than Detroit and Boston during the year. I mean, better than I, but uh, I don't remember. You know, my favorite Cleveland team had Rocky Calavito. That's how far back I go. Yeah. With, uh, when they traded him for Harvey Keene, I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, you really couldn't argue with the way that Steinbrenner – ran the Yankee organization, though, because they won. Yeah, I mean, there's they, they, they won, 
and they, they, they really changed baseball. The Yankees forced teams to, into free agency. Uh, because if you're going to compete with the Yankees, you had to do the same thing they did. And, and teams, the problem was teams could not outspend them. And that's, that, that's the problem when you're dealing with the Yankees. You try to compete with them on a financial level and you can't do it. There's not enough income. And, and, and look at the, look at the Dodgers. Uh, they have not won a World Series despite having a payroll that is unconscionable. So it's it's not just money, and I think I, I really give tribute to the Steinbrenners, the younger Steinbrenners, on how they are taking their money and investing in the future and building that thing from the ground up. Because man, they they are building a powerhouse over there, and uh, I, I don't know who in the American League can keep up with them. Well, and you've got a you've got a general manager in Brian Cashman that's. One of the bright minds in Major League Baseball. They managed to keep him a couple of years ago. Remember when he was thinking of leaving? Yeah, and it's funny. A friend of mine uh, named Mike Wolf. In fact, uh, we had drinks with Brian Cashman. I don't know, ten years ago, I think it was, uh, up in New York City at the um, induction of the Hall of Fame. The guys in the Hall of, or into the, um, the announced the most valuable player and the Cy Young and all that stuff. They got their awards that night. And I remember talking to him at a bar about what the Yankees were doing. And this was in the midst when they had just won, what, three or four World Series in, in four or five years. And he said, well, even the Yankees can't continue to do what we've been doing. It's a different landscape. You know, we've got to invest in our team long term and all that stuff. And I didn't. I didn't think this, you know, they would get out of the mode of signing free agency, uh, signing free agents, but they've done it. And he has been, you know, he's been able to adapt to a different uh, ownership, a, a different approach. And I, I think he's done a heck of a job in, in, in changing the culture of his team. And by doing so, he's really changed the culture in a lot of ways of Major League Baseball, because you don't have rush to agent signings anymore. I mean, look how many free agents this year didn't sign. Or in the last three or four years, some guys are, are you know, teams say to hell with you. Mm-hmm. What sit by the beach during the year. So that, that has had a, a major impact in baseball, and I think it's a positive impact. Mark, what do the Reds have going on the rest of this week? Well, they... they the Cubs this week, and I, and I think I don't want to overestimate a three-game series, but they've lost three in a row. And, and frankly, I had not looked at the schedule beyond um, these next three days. But they've lost three in a row, and they're playing a team they have to beat. And the Cubs uh, are, have not played well this year. If the Reds go in and get blown out these three games in Chicago, I think it's going to be – uh, a very negative thing for the rest of the year. If they can go in and win two or three, uh, or even j- just win a game in Chicago, it'll keep the hope alive. But if they can come out of Chicago with a six-game losing streak, uh, this may be the beginning of the end for the Reds, and I, and I hope I'm wrong. How about the Indians? After Well, after let's just let everybody know that after the Cubs, then the Reds will come home and take on the Colorado Rockies on Friday, Saturday afternoon at 410 and Sunday at 
110, and then the Indians come in on Monday and Tuesday. The Indians right now, they're playing Tampa Bay tonight. They've got them on Tuesday, and then Wednesday afternoon they're off on Thursday. And then they go to Houston and take on the Astros Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon before, as we said, heading to Cincinnati and taking on the Reds. And don't forget, our show will originate from the Montgomery Inn Boathouse at 925 Riverside Drive. We're on at a special time next Friday, uh, next Monday night. That'll be at 7 o'clock. We'll have a special two-hour show from 7 to 9 o'clock from the Montgomery Inn. So stop down and say hello to us. Mark, we'll see you next week. That's going to do it for the show tonight again, as I said. Join us next week from the Montgomery Inn, and I hope you'll just stop down and say hello to us. And please do that if you get the opportunity to do so at 925 Riverside Drive, the Montgomery Inn Boathouse in Cincinnati. Don't forget to join Mark and I with our edition next week of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Until then, for Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.